This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, I'd be really glad if you'd open those with me to the book of Revelation. It's all the way uh, at the very end. We will be in Revelation chapter 5 for the start of today's sermon. Revelation chapter 5. If you brought your own Bible, then that's great. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one like this and a seat back that's not too far away from you. And if you're looking for Revelation 5, you'll find it on, find it on page 967, 967. As I mentioned at the outset of today's service, uh, today is going to be more of a topical message rather than an expositional one. So Revelation 5 is, is where we're uh, focusing our attention. We'll read it out loud together in just a bit. Uh, but my intention today is not to give an exposition of Revelation 5. Incidentally, if you want to know more about what Revelation says and means, then you can come on Wednesday and enjoy our inductive Bible study of Revelation. Uh, we are on Revelation 12, I think, uh, we're entering into that portion of the book of Revelation, and you're welcome to come and enjoy that study. Uh, this morning, though, Revelation 5 highlights something that is uh, the highlight of our topic for today. Uh, for those who like to take notes, there will be slides that will hopefully follow along uh, with where I'm going with the sermon. And the main point uh, is behind me here, and it's also in your bulletin. So if you want to be able to refer back there, if you're not able to write it all down, uh, that's, that's available to you. I want to start today, uh, the, the preaching time, by asking a question as, as I uh, often do. And the question I'd like to ask today is, how much doctrine do you think a person needs to know in order to become a Christian? How much doctrine? How much of the teaching of the substance of Christianity? How many truth statements does a person need to understand in order to become a Christian? Now, certainly it seems that we would agree that sinners need to believe in Jesus. But which Jesus? The Jesus that fulfills my desires or the Jesus that satisfied God's wrath? We would agree that people need to repent from sin and believe in Jesus. But what sin? That sin uh, defined as something I feel like is not so great? Or that stuff that is defined by God as sin. This is off limits. This is how far you should go and no farther. And what does repentance look like? Is repentance me just kind of feeling bad about something? Is it feeling sorry that I got caught or that I did something wrong? Or is repentance actually turning away from that sin I love and turning toward humble obedience to Christ? Well, you get the point. Even if we only use some familiar phrases to say, well, this is all someone needs to do in order to become a Christian. If we start drilling down into those, those familiar phrases, we realize just how much doctrine is actually there. Uh, J.I. Packer, in that little book I referred to a little while ago, affirming the Apostles' Creed, he picked on what is a very common uh, practice of evangelism in our day. It's, it often goes by the ABCs of evangelism. He picked on it a little bit. And he said, in the interest of memorable simplicity, many have boiled the gospel down to an ABC, commonly formulated as follows. He, he opens it up for us. A, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, you included. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. C, confess Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and he will in due course welcome you into heaven. And these are all true statements. But as Packer went on to say, in such an environment of simplicity, a truncated or simplified version of the gospel message becomes, it can become, a misrepresentation. One that sows the seed of many pastoral problems down the road. He argued that our simple gospel presentations can often present Christ the Redeemer apart from God the Creator. And remission or forgiveness of sins apart from personal regeneration. And individual salvation apart from life and worship as part of a local church. And the hope of heaven apart from 
the pilgrim path of holiness. Now, the kind of pastoral problems that Mr. Packer is warning about here are really discipling problems that I think inevitably arise when anyone who's responded to the ABC presentation of the gospel, uh, once they're confronted with any kind of demand on them, uh, these sort of discipling problems arise. So, for example, someone who's responded to the ABC gospel presentation like it's just been articulated here, once you tell him or her that, look, yes, indeed, believing in Christ is essential, but what that looks like is actually repenting, turning from sin and being obedient to what Christ has commanded. Well, then you get the cold shoulder. Then you get the, hey, what are you talking about here? I did the believing thing. What do you mean I have to turn away from my sin? You, you're being judgmental. Or what about when you tell that person that all you have to do is ad- admit, believe, and confess, and then you'll be a Christian? Well, what it means to be a Christian in this world is to actually connect with, join with other Christians in the structures of a local church. This is God's discipling uh, uh, institution, mechanism. That to be a Christian means to be connected with not only Christ, but Christ's body. Ah, once again, you get the accusation of being judgmental, legalistic. And friends, many of us can think of uh, friends and family, people that we know and love, who have admitted, believed, and confessed at some point in their lives, but today are not living in any kind of a way that expresses any meaningful desire to live as a Christian. So again, I ask you, how much doctrine does anyone need to know in order to become a Christian? Well, the earliest Christians, so far as we can tell, thought that the Apostles' Creed was a sort of minimal doctrinal standard. Quoting from Packer again, he said the Creed, the Apostles' Creed itself, was born as an instrument of evangelism. First, he said that the Apostles' Creed, as summarized on the inside right-hand side of your bulletin, Uh, The Apostles' Creed was first a summary syllabus for the teaching of the Christian faith. So it summarized what do Christians believe? The Apostles' Creed. This is the basis, uh, the basic uh, fundamental doctrines, teachings, instructions of what Christians believe. Then he said that it was a declaration of personal faith for converts to use at the time of their baptism. You might be interested to know that the earliest Christian churches, within a generation or two at least, of the death of the early apostles, almost universally embraced a three-year program uh, in order to instruct or to teach what they called catechumens, uh, a word that's still commonly used in some circles today, what they would need to know in order to consciously and responsibly convert to Christianity. So a three-year discipling program before someone could be even considered a Christian so that you'd know what you meant when you said, I'm a Christian. And at the conclusion of this three-year program, which again was almost universally embraced, embraced by the, the earliest churches, so far as we can tell, that the conclusion of this came as they would, these catechumens, these folks who had gone through this program, would then be baptized publicly, converting to Christianity, and they would either themselves recite the Apostles' Creed or the Apostles' Creed would be recited and they would affirm, yes, we believe these things are true. Now, as we begin our study through this short and profound creed, we're really, uh, my last sermon on the Apostles' Creed was just kind of introducing the creed uh, as a creed and what a creed is and, and the importance of this one in particular. So really today is going to be the first time we're, we're diving into the Apostles' Creed, the substance of it. And I want to f- focus our attention at the outset on the essential Trinitarian theme, which thunders from the very beginning of the Apostles' Creed and reverberates throughout the three major sections of the Apostles' Creed. Now, think about it with me for a second. I might have lost you when I said that the Apostles' Creed is the summary of the basics of the Christian faith. And then I said that the doctrine of the Trinity is a very major theme of the Apostles' Creed. So yes, I said that the doctrine of the Trinity is basic, fundamental, elementary, to what Christians believe. So how many of you are ready to come on up here and give everyone a 30-second summary of what the doctrine of the Trinity is? Well, if you're like most Christians, then probably that's terrifying. Wait a second. Uh, I'm not ready to do that. Well, my hope today, in part, will be to try to help us to see that the doctrine of the Trinity, though it can be intimidating uh, to many of us, that it is indeed simple and 
practical. It is simple and practical. It, it is very profound. In other words, we can plumb the depths of the doctrine of the Trinity as far as we like and we'll never get to the bottom. But it is also simple and practical. Now, the reason for starting in Revelation chapter 5 is because what Revelation 5 does is it begins to put on display for us the beauty and how common the Bible puts the doctrine of the Trinity on display. So when we read through, just a moment, we're going to all stand, and I'm going to read Revelation chapter 5, the whole, the whole chapter. And I want you to listen for uh, what is it that's being said in this, in this chapter of Scripture about worth. Who is being declared worthy? Who is being worshipped? Worshipped? Who is, who is having worth ascribed to them uh, throughout this passage of Scripture? Well, one of the ways that we try to show respect for God's word is we'll stand or read the primary passage. Would you mind staying with me as we read this primary passage for today? Revelation chapter 5. I'll begin in verse 1 and I'll finish at the end in verse 14. This incredible vision that John sees because God has shown it to him is what we're reading this morning. Then John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. This fascinating and strange and interesting and awesome passage has so much more in it than we will be able to get to this morning. As I said, this morning is meant to be a topical message looking at the nature of God, specifically God as a Trinity. So my main point this morning, uh, using Revelation 5 as an example and other passages as well. In fact, I'll be citing many passages today, uh, most of which will be up on the screen behind me as I go. The main point today, though, is that the explicitly singular God of the Bible has revealed himself consistently throughout Scripture as a trinity, namely as Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, let's unpack that main point, and we'll start with point number one, that the God of the Bible is one. This is a major and common theme all throughout Scripture. But let's turn our attention first to the quintessential place in the Bible 
where the oneness of God is affirmed. And that every Hebrew would have known by heart. In fact, many, uh, uh, many of those who would follow the Jewish faith today uh, would, would even know this, this known as the Shema, this particular saying that is repeated again and again by those who are uh, monotheists according to the Old Testament scriptures. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to list a lot of Bible passages. And if you're like, did Bible drill as a kid and you're able to flip with me fast, you can do that. Uh, but don't worry uh, about going to all of these. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was fundamental to being someone who was a follower of, a believer in, a servant of the God of the Bible. Uh, this, this phrase here. Uh, so much so that when Jesus was asked in the New Testament, which commandment is the most important, Jesus answered by pointing here. He said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This, of course, is a, a citation of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is found in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 30. Uh, a major theme throughout uh, the Old Testament is God's divine uniqueness. So I've pointed to the, the phrase that we might say, what's, what's the one statement of all of the Bible that affirms the oneness of God? Well, it's Deuteronomy 6.4. But this is not the only way that God affirms his oneness or uniqueness or his singularity. The, the, whole, the whole theme, the, the, one of the major themes of the whole Old Testament is that God is unique. There's no one else like him, nothing else like him. The Exodus story is all about God distinguishing himself as singular or unique among all other so-called gods. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, God says that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. They'll know who I am when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel. So when God comes against Egypt and shows their gods to be insufficient for protecting them, and God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, shows that he is able to protect his people, even though they currently are in possession in the possession of the Egyptians, they'll know that he is God like no other. That's the idea. Exodus chapter 8, verse 10, God himself says that he's going to judge Egypt so that you, speaking directly to Pharaoh, but all of Egypt by, by uh, indirect uh, result, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord. The whole purpose for God coming against Egypt in judgment is so that Egypt will know there's nobody else like God. He is the only one. Indeed, God said in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, that it was for this very purpose to display God's absolute uniqueness and his divine character that he raised up Pharaoh he did, he did that, Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, so that God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh God, the God of the Hebrews, the one who's revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and has now raised up Moses to go and tell the Pharaoh of Egypt that God's people, this nation that God is forming for himself out of, out of a nobody, that God is God, and no one else is in order that his name will be proclaimed in all the earth above all other gods. He's doing this great thing, bringing judgment upon Egypt and rescuing his people so that his name will be proclaimed. He will be proclaimed as God above all others. I could go on. The book of Exodus is, is uh, all about this, this very idea. But the main way that God distinguished himself throughout the Old Testament was by speaking with both truth and with power. You see, he actually speaks and his words are trustworthy, unlike the false prophets who served pretend gods. So if you like, Isaiah 45 is one is a place I'm going to ask you to turn. It's a big book of the Bible that's right in the middle of the Bible. If you flip there, Isaiah chapter 45. Uh, the book of Isaiah is a, is a bunch of prophecies about what God is going to do, primarily in judgment and then in salvation for his own people. Uh, so here, it's not those foreign Egyptians that God is coming after in judgment, but it's actually his own people that he is prophesying judgment about, and also the reality that God is going to graciously preserve them. But in Isaiah 45, I'll begin in verse 18. 
there is in rapid succession this repeated idea of God's uniqueness, his singularity, uh, that he is unlike everyone else. And listen to how he sets himself apart. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. Thus the Lord says, thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God. So he's God, the creator who formed the earth and made it. I am the Lord. There is no other. His his uniqueness, his singularity at the end of verse 19. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. In contrast, in verse 20, the end of verse 20, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. A God that doesn't speak, a God that doesn't save, a God that doesn't act. That's not who God is. That's who those idols are. That's who those pretend gods are. At the end of verse 21, but there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and savior. There is none besides me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself, I have sworn and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. In other words, that is going to do what it has set out to do. God speaks and his words are true and his words are powerful. And in this way, God is not like anything else or anyone else that you might call God. He is unique. Incidentally, for those who might be interested, if you have a friend who's a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, maybe a family member, Isaiah 45 is a great passage to turn to, to show the uniqueness of God, that there's not a multiplicity of gods out there, that there's not three or three million, but that there is one God. And it's also wonderful, a wonderful passage because in the New World Translation, which is com- commonly carried about by Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, it reads the exact same. Isaiah 45, a great passage to turn to. In short, I'm arguing that the Old Testament could not be any clearer about the uniqueness and the oneness of God. The God of the Old Testament is explicitly singular. But what about the new? Does God's character and nature change when we flip the pages of our Bible? Well, no, is the short answer to that. But let's consider some New Testament passages. Well, Jesus himself said that the gospel of the New Testament focused on knowing the one God of the Old Testament. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, that this is eternal life that they, speaking of his disciples, know you the one God, the only true God. So Jesus himself affirms that there is one God. There's only one true God and no other. In no uncertain terms, the New Testament tells us that there is one God. First Timothy chapter two, verse five, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. The New Testament affirms the exact same thing as the old, that the God of the Bible, the God of both Testaments, is one. He is singular. In fact, I argue that the New Testament teaches us that the same singular God who made promises in the Old Testament has fulfilled and is fulfilling his promises in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That the point of the Old Testament is not to introduce us to a new kind of God, but rather to tell us what the Old Testament God has been doing all along and that his promises are faithful and true. So to the Jew, the gospel of the New Testament, as we've been reading through the book of Acts and studying through on Sunday mornings, the New Testament focuses the Jew on the evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Messiah or Christ of old. This is the way that Jews preach the gospel to fellow Jews. They tell them that all that stuff that God had been saying all along about this Christ or anointed one or Messiah to come, that Jesus is that one. To the Gentile who had no grounding in the Old Testament, Well, the gospel focused more on the same sort of God, man, Christ response type of summary of the gospel that we've talked about many times, which still highlights the fact that there is one God who saves guilty sinners through the person and work of his son. So the gospel is the same for the Jew and the Gentile. The emphasis is slightly different. The one has a deep grounding in the Old Testament and the other one does not. So, for example, in Acts chapter 17, 
when the Apostle Paul addressed a bunch of Greek Gentiles in Athens, he tells them, this is Acts chapter 17, I'll start in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, creator God, does not need anything. He sustains the world all by himself. He doesn't need your help. But he himself gives to all mankind breath and life and a breath, life, breath and everything. And he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed to this role. And of this, the apostle Paul says, he, God, has given us assurance by raising this man from the dead. So think about the way he summarizes there. God is the creator and sustainer of everything. You and I, we owe God everything. We have not lived in submission and obedience, glad submission and obedience to this God that we owe all of this to. God demands, expects repentance immediately. And he has told us that he will judge everyone everywhere by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, showing that he's the one who's going to judge everyone. But the implication is that the call to repent means that there is salvation, reprieve, mercy, grace, if repentance happens. Once again, the message of the New Testament is that there is one God who will judge everyone everywhere. Friends, the Bible is clear in both the Old Testament and in the New. There is one God. The God of the Bible is one. He is singular. Whatever else we might say about God, we cannot ever speak or think of God in terms of a plurality of gods. The God of the Bible has no equal and there is no other God beside him or like him. And yet, this singular God has also revealed himself as three in a different sense. God has revealed himself as one what and three whose. The Bible never asks us to embrace illogical stuff. The Bible sometimes asks us, in fact, especially when we're talking about the very character and nature of God, the Bible sometimes asks us to embrace stuff that we don't fully understand. So what Christians are not saying is, is that God is one and in the same sense, in the same way, he is three. That's not what Christians are saying. Christians are saying, because the Bible teaches, that God is in one sense one. To use technical language, he is ontologically one. His, his being, his essence is one. And he has revealed himself in three persons, to use kind of language as best as we can to say what God says about himself. So let's consider this second aspect of what we're diving into today. Point number two, that God has revealed himself as father, as son, and as spirit. I've already been alluding to the mysterious nature of this doctrine. It is a mystery. In fact, what many people have pointed to is that uh, there is a way in which the Bible unfolds as a whole, the Old Testament and the New, that that which is mysterious or, or concealed, uh, a mystery concealed in the Old Testament is a mystery revealed in the New. Uh, the Bible often uh, will, will reveal as it goes along. There's a progressive sense of the revelation of God. He tells us more about himself as the Bible continues on, though never contradicting himself. So there is a sense in which the doctrine of the Trinity is concealed in the Old Testament, though never contradicted and never entirely absent, I think. Uh, but this is a major and even inescapable doctrine of the New Testament for sure. So let's think about this for a moment. That God reveals himself as father, as son, and as spirit. Well, Al Mohler, in another one of those uh, books that is down here on the front, the Apostles' Creed, where he explains and tries to apply the truths of the Apostles' Creed in our lives. He says, the complete revelation of God as father has roots in the Old Testament, where God is described as the father of Israel, Deuteronomy 32.6. The fatherly love of God is also present throughout the Old Testament. The psalmist describes God as the father of the fatherless. So the, the fatherness of God or the reality that God is father is it has its root in the Old Testament. But as Albert Moeller goes on to say, and as Christians have been saying for centuries, uh, the complete revelation of God as father comes with the life and ministry of Jesus. So it is when Jesus steps on the scene that the clarity of the doctrine of the Trinity becomes clear. It becomes manifest. It was Jesus who taught Christians how to pray by addressing God as our father in heaven. Matthew chapter six, verse nine, or Luke chapter 11, verse two. 
Jesus taught Christians to think of God as a loving and generous father who knows our needs and who is well pleased to provide for his children. Luke eleven eleven, Luke twelve, thirty to thirty two. And incredibly, the very first message that Jesus wanted his disciples to hear and to know after his resurrection was this. Tell my disciples, he tells the woman who's met him at his resurrection. He says, go and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he's telling those who will listen to him. He is teaching that God is to be known as father. Clearly, the Bible wants us to know that the father is God. But the Bible also reveals God as son. The author of Hebrews, for example, when this book of the Bible opens, teaches us that Psalm 2, a book in the Old Testament, is actually a prophecy about Jesus. So in Psalm 2, God predicts that his own son will be the universal king over all the earth and the one who embodies both God's refuge and his wrath. This is the prediction of Psalm 2. And this is what the author of Hebrews says Jesus is. And of course, this is the entire point of all of the opening of the book of Hebrews. God's son is indeed the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 2. God's son is the one through whom the world was created. Uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 2. And God's son is the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews 1, 3. If you want to hear more about that, come tonight when Russ tells us about how he's the image of the invisible God. From Colossians 1. It's clear that God's son possesses the same characteristics as God himself. Indeed, the son of God is God the son. Let's take a deeper look at the passage we all read together just a moment ago in Revelation chapter 5. I don't want any of us leaving here wondering, does the Bible really affirm Jesus is God? As a matter of fact, it does. Again and again. In Revelation 5, that passage we, we all read together a little while ago. It builds on a scene that is described in Revelation chapter 4. And the scene is a spectacular one. Uh, There's a brilliant someone who's seated on the throne, which is itself decorated in cosmic and earthy beauty. And as the description unfolds, it becomes clear that God the Father is the one upon the throne. He's the one in focus uh, upon the throne in Revelation 4 and 5. From this throne in Revelation 4 and 5, there's lightning and thunder And the one seated there commands all things and is worshipped constantly by everything in his presence. It it has kind of a a throwback uh, uh, imagery of what we what we might think uh, it might have looked like at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. Where there's thunder and flashes of lightning and rumblings. And there's God who's manifesting himself to his people. It kind of feels like that when we read through Revelation 4 and 5. But these ones who are gathered around his throne in Revelation 4 verse 8. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, offering worship to this one who is seated upon the throne. Chapter 5 then opens with a new piece of information. So same scene, but new information. And the new information is that him who was seated on the throne had a scroll in his right hand. And we're told that no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Indeed, no one was worthy. And just as John, the one who's seeing this vision unfold, just as he began to weep because no one was found worthy, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, one of those worshiping around the throne comes to him and says, don't cry anymore, John. Behold, see, there is someone who's worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that... He can open the scroll. But when John turns to look and see this line of the tribe of Judah, this root of David, he sees not a worthy lion, but a worthy lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, of course, all of these images, these descriptions, the lion, the root, the lamb, they refer to Jesus Christ. These are tapping into biblical themes and imagery Uh, that happened all throughout the Bible, pointing to Jesus as the one who was the Messiah, the Christ 
of old. So we, we learn then that what John is doing and what he's seeing in this vision, this revelation that God is giving him is that there is one who's worthy to approach the throne upon which the father sits, who is someone who's distinct from the father. And the whole scene climaxes with another focus on worship. But this time, the worship is not only directed at the one who's seated on the throne. Who else is now included in this worship? What's the lamb? John heard, verse 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and everything that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, as this passage has unfolded, he's referring to the father there, to the father and to the lamb, to the son. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Friends, Jesus is not merely a God. He is not merely like God. Jesus is God. He is the son of God and God the son. And he is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory just as the father. The Bible explicitly gives it to him. This is one of just a number of places I could turn to make that very argument. But hopefully you see it on display there. Uh, Thirdly, under point number two, uh, God has revealed himself not only as father and son, but also as spirit. The Holy Spirit is notorious for directing all attention toward the father and the son. But he too is clearly revealed as God in the Bible. When God finally came to dwell among his people, reversing the curse of Genesis 3 and welcoming sinners back into his presence after having been cut off for so long, it was the Holy Spirit or God's Spirit in Acts chapter 2 who filled all those who believed. When Ananias and Sapphira lied about their offering in Acts chapter 5, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds? Then Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. And when God explicitly revealed the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's covenant promises through the gospel, it was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who spoke and made this clear. This is especially obvious in Acts chapter 10. And in particular, chapter 11, verse 12 is a fascinating verse. It is God's spirit who speaks and reveals this truth about who God is including in his covenantal promises. Sometimes the New Testament authors will refer back to something that was written in the Old Testament. And they'll say that it was the Holy Spirit who spoke. The Holy Spirit says the spirit was indicating and predicting. The New Testament teaches us that all of scripture is a product of of men writing the very words of God. And how were they able to write the words of God? Well, Peter tells us in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 21, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So how are God's words coming through the pens of man? Because the Holy Spirit was producing such an effect. While worshiping the Lord in Acts chapter 13, The people of God were directed by divinely authoritative words from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit commanded them. When deciding on what to do with these new Gentile converts who were also included in God's promises of blessing. It was the Holy Spirit who authoritatively guided the way forward. And in the appointment of pastors, elders, overseers in New Testament churches, the Bible teaches us that it is the Holy Spirit who ultimately raises these men up and places qualified men to serve in such a role. Acts twenty, twenty-eight. Friends, all of this to say, all of this is to say that the Holy Spirit speaks with the voice of God. The Holy Spirit directs and guides with the authority of God. And the Holy Spirit judges and rules with the power of God. The Holy Spirit is God. So then the singular God of the Bible has revealed himself as three persons. As I said before, one what? How many is God? He is one what? Who is God? God is Father and Son and Spirit. But there's one more truth that we need to understand in order to bring this doctrine home. And that is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not merely 
odes or parts of God. These are distinct from one another. Point number three, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are distinct. Now, this is probably the most abstract. I'm going to say it is. That means intellectually difficult of the points that I'll argue today. So if you've already had a tough time following me this far, you know, shake off the cobwebs, do what you need to do for a second to come on back in. Let's keep, keep making our headway through this, this passage or, or this topic. Uh, I'll also uh, encourage you by saying this will be the shortest point that I'll make all day. So it's the most challenging intellectually, but it's also the shortest. That the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son. That these three are distinct. The clearest place I think we can see these three persons of the Trinity on display distinctly working and acting simultaneously in relationship with one another is at the baptism of Jesus. So turn with me, if you can, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. I'll start looking in verse 13. It's a short passage. And it it reveals to us something that, as I said, it, it is, I think, quite simple, but it's difficult to fully wrap our minds around. So in Matthew chapter 3, uh, Jesus came to John to be baptized, is what verse 13 tells us. Uh, each of the gospel writers records this experience in, in their own way. Uh, but Matthew records it in this way. So Jesus came to John to be baptized. This is during the earthly ministry of Jesus. And verse 16 tells us, when Jesus was baptized under the water, immediately we came, when he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, And he saw, John saw, the Spirit of God descending. And verse 17 says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here at Jesus' baptism, we see something of, uh, John, uh, John at least, sees something of a vision of the Holy Spirit descending. So the Holy Spirit is doing a distinct thing in this passage. God the Son, in the form of Jesus Christ, uh, the, the God who took on humanity, uh, God the Son taking on uh, human flesh and living as a man in the world, he's coming up out of the water of baptism. And there's a voice from heaven, which is coming from the Father. So each of the persons of the Trinity are present and active and in relationship one with another. God is not speaking to himself, who's baptized and then descending on himself, after baptism, but rather there's a sense in which the father is saying a word about the son. The son is the one who's experiencing baptism and the spirit is acting upon the son in his own distinct way. The father, the son, and the spirit are distinct. So to keep pressing this forward in maybe more concrete terms that will help us to grab hold of this aspect of the truth I'm trying to proclaim today is that God the son did not send himself to live and die for sinners. Rather, he came willingly as he was sent by the Father. This is his own testimony, John 14, 24. Jesus did not pray to himself during his earthly ministry, but rather he says he prays to his Father. John 17 is an example of this. Jesus does not intercede to himself on behalf of guilty sinners like us, for whom he paid the price. But rather, the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 34, tells us that Jesus is our resurrected mediator interceding at the Father's right hand. This indeed is a bit more abstract, but to deny the distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is one of the oldest official heresies. And it remains popular among some professing Christians today. Uh, So, for example, Unitarians or Modalists or Oneness Pentecostals Uh, Each of these, in some way or another, reject the doctrine of the Trinity by confusing the distinctions between each of the persons of the Godhead. And by doing so, they flatten out the most profoundly relational characteristic which God has revealed about himself. This not only loses the richly intentional and loving personal features of the gospel, it is a conscious and deliberate step away from Christianity altogether. So to be clear, I'm saying to know God, to be a Christian, we must not force God's revelation of himself to fit into our 
preconditioned philosophical categories. Instead, we must take God at his word. We must embrace the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself as an explicitly singular God who simultaneously and distinctly is Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me bring this to really, hopefully, practical and simple terms. Point number four, the Trinity is simple and practical. The doctrine of the Trinity, I believe, is simple in the sense that we don't have to explain it. We don't have to explain it. Friends, I think the doctrine of the Trinity gets a bad rap. Sometimes Christians talk and act like this is the one doctrine that baffles the human mind. But I challenge you to explain to me any of God's uniquely divine attributes. So, for example, uh, maybe you could stand up and just give us all an explanation of the mechanics of God's aseity this morning. Probably most of you didn't even know there was such a word. Or what that even refers to when it's talking about who God is. How about God's impassibility? Or maybe you can tell me what Christians mean when they claim that God is omnipresent or transcendent or unchangeable. Friends, the point is, is that the doctrine of the Trinity is a difficult doctrine for us to wrap our minds around because it speaks to the very nature of who God is. Just like all of the characteristics of God as he reveals about himself, they are incomprehensible. We can't wrap our minds fully around any one of them. But we don't have to fully explain them. The doctrine of the Trinity, like these others, which touch on the very nature of who God is, these are outside of our full comprehension, and this is exactly as we ought to expect it. This is God we're talking about, after all. If God was fully understandable by any one of us in this room, he wouldn't be God. That's not to say that we can't know anything about God, but it's to say that we ought to be humble in our understanding, in our expectation of what we should understand about who God has revealed himself to be. So I guess what I'm saying is that the doctrine of the Trinity is simple in that it affirms some simple truths that you don't have to fully comprehend. And that's okay. Why would anyone think that the creator and sustainer of the universe would be comprehensible to dependent, finite creatures like us? One day, Christians will gather in eternity to see and to know God like we've never known him before. And we will study and praise him for eons without ever plumbing the depths of who he is. We will never get to the end of him. Brothers and sisters, especially to my Christian brothers and sisters in here this morning, we do not have to explain the mechanics of God's nature. We do not owe philosophers any explanation when they say to us, we just can't understand this doctrine of the Trinity that you keep affirming. It is for us. To learn what God has said or revealed about himself in his word. And then we simply believe it. If the Bible says that God is one, then I believe it. If the Bible says that God is father and son in spirit, then I believe it. If the Bible says that the father is distinct from the son and the son is distinct from the spirit and the spirit is distinct from the father, then I believe it. And I don't have to worry about explaining that to myself or to anyone else. So the doctrine of the Trinity is simple. It affirms those three things. They were my main points in today's sermon, and we don't have to explain it. We simply affirm what God has said about himself. The doctrine of the Trinity is also practical. This is the second sort of sub-point underneath my last point today. It's practical in the sense that it comes into play with the very basic experiences of the Christian life. So while the doctrine of the Trinity may be intimidating for some of us, maybe many of us in this room this morning, I just want to just think about for a moment, brother or sister, how often you act on your belief in the doctrine of the Trinity. When you become a Christian, you trust in Jesus Christ as the divine Savior who is the Son of God. You're a Trinitarian. When you speak of the gospel, you tell of how God the Father sent his Son into the world to be the human representative and Savior of guilty sinners. You're a Trinitarian. When you feel a sense of your of God's presence, an awareness of God's presence around you, you are enjoying the comfort and the joy of the Holy Spirit who indwells all Christians. You are a Trinitarian. When you pray 
you speak to God, who is your heavenly father in the name of Jesus Christ, his son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, you are Trinitarian. When you gather with fellow church members on the Lord's day, you offer worship to the one God, celebrating and embracing the only savior to be edified and built up by the power of God's spirit. Friends, we believe and live according to the doctrine of the Trinity every day of our Christian lives. We cannot say much of anything about the gospel or the church or final judgment or the unity Christians share or the final resurrection without referring to or explicitly affirming the doctrine of the Trinity, which is all throughout the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the one and only God of the Bible who has revealed himself consistently throughout Scripture as a trinity, namely Father, Son, and Spirit. So what's the takeaway for a sermon like this? Russ and I were just talking this week about some of the difficulties that preachers have with making application. Sometimes there are clear applications in the text. Here's what we should go and do from here. Here's what we should go and think from here. Here's how we should go and speak from here. I think today's sermon, when we talk about the very character of God, is not necessarily, at least not primarily meant to make us go and do something, but rather to worship, to praise the God who is the triune God, the one who is one and three, the one God we worship who's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, we trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.